You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. The focus will be on moving, on shifting from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to that of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. So in our last class, Rav Cook illuminated to us and upon us the need to take this inner light of essential freedom, that this is what he calls it, <clears throat> to take this inner light, the Orah uh, HaPenimi, and to move with it, to really go on a journey with it. He uses the phrase, Nasevenelech, to really move and go on one's journey with that inner light of freedom. Increasingly, Increasingly, he uses the verb lahavlit to accentuate our own inner self and sense of independence. So the independence that we acquired historically through the Gilui HaShekhinah, it's all based on the revelation of the indwelling of, the, of God's presence, the divine presence within us, it began when we came out of Mitzrayim. That was the beginning point. However, it continues. It continues in how we decide to live our lives. So, And he sees it, not only does it continue, which would be Laham Sheikh, but it actually Lahavlit. It increases generation after generation after generation. That this sense of inner freedom and independence that we did acquire, we move with it. It becomes something dynamic. It's actually part of our consciousness. It's what we wake up to. It, it enters into every part of our day, ideally, and we go to sleep with it. And he uses a beautiful phrase. He said, this is the freedom that we acquired through the greatest al-yadeh hapela ha-gadol ha-yechid ba'olam, the greatest wonder. Chevra, try to remember that word, pela. The greatest wonder, single wonder in the world. It is truly a wonder, he's telling us, when we can experience this. There's nothing mundane about it. Nothing mundane. It's really a moment in the course of a day when we're so busy with this worldly items on our agenda to take a moment and just experience that sense of free will, of Bechirach of Shit, that we can even do that. He calls that a pella, a wonder. <clears throat> and then he then continues, <clears throat> excuse me, by inviting us to all sit down to the Seder and remember and recall that when we do, to be cognizant, to be cognizant that when we're sitting down, Yivadalanu, may it be known to us and be cognizant of that we're B'nai Malachim, we are royalty. We know on Rosh Hashanah, in the Tefillah, in the Davening, we have the famous Avinu Malkenu. That series, Avinu Malkenu. Well, who can say, our father, our king? 
There are many people that can say our father, and there are fewer people who can say our king. I mean, there are many people that can say our king, the subjects of a king. And there are many people who can say Avinu, obviously the children of a father. But who can say in the same breath Avinu Malkenu, our father who is our king, or our king who is our father, a prince and a princess. So what he's saying here is don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are, your royalty. You're created in the image of Avinu Malkenu. So therefore, freedom for the Jewish people, and by extension, all of humanity, freedom is our portion. We were designed, we were created, we were intended to experience this Pella, this great wonder, single greatest wonder in the world. And then he concluded in his introduction to the Seder in this final paragraph in his invitation to remember, to guard, and it's a pasuk, it's a verse he quoted from Shemot, from Exodus 12.17, Yud Bet, Yud Zion. And the pasuk says, Lishmor, Lishmor et hamatzot. Now, the Peshat of Lishmor is to observe the way one says, Anishomeret Shabbat, I observe Shabbat. So, of course, the Peshat, the literal meaning is, be careful how one observes the holiday of the Matzot, Chag HaMatzot. The deeper meaning, though, which is what he concludes his introduction with, and thereby is the word lishmor also means to protect, to guard. Yeah. yeah, so protect, to guard, not only the physical matzot. Hence you have a phrase, shmora matzah, matzah, that we take care to make sure it's kasher pesach that it does not have any contact with water leading up to the holiday. But it's more than just guarding or protecting the actual matzot, it's really what that represents. And he says it represents two ideals, freedom and biorachametz, chirut and biorachametz, which is exactly how he started this whole piece. So not only are they shatalui zebezeh, not only do they misamnim, not only do they symbolize or message to us, the very meaning of Chag HaGu'ula. And they, in fact, are interdependent. But that is, in fact, what we need to ongoingly really protect. And I find it, after meditating on this phrase, these two subjects, these two ideals, both HaCherut, and biachametz, I believe he's saying something even deeper, that whatever it is in our past that allows us to really hold freedom, to really experience freedom, honor that also, protect that also. The very act of biachametz, of moving from that space of scarcity with the I can't and I shouldn't and I won't and what if, to a place of, but of course I'm compelled, I must, I have to, how? That that process, that tension, that growth that moves us out of the place of a narrow place to an expanded place from a Mitzrayim to our own spiritual Eretz Yisrael, that that is always to be honored. There's nothing unholy about that. That's as much of shmirat hachag, of honoring, of protecting, of guarding the holiday, as the matzah is, which is our freedom. Then we moved into the very first step of the Seder, the first of the 15 steps, Kadesh. And what we discussed last week 
It was basically Kadesh perplexes the Rav. Because we were given the commandment to sanctify time in the plural. And we quoted, we discussed the verse from Shemot, again, Yudbet. There's a lot in that chapter, in chapter 12 in Exodus. But the very first verse is where we see the commandment to actually sanctify time through the observation and then the sanctification of a new moon. And from that point on, all the holidays were referencing a date in a month with the Chodesh, the Chodesh of Nisan being the first month. That commandment was given lachem to all of you. And God said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, So the command was given, and this was the first commandment actually given to Klal Yisrael, to the general population of the entirety of Bnei Yisrael. However, the fulfillment of that, as emphasized by the singular Kadesh, which is a tzivui, it's in the command form. The it's not kadshu, you may you should all, or may you all sanctify. It's each one of you individually sanctify time through the recital of the kiddush. So he draws our attention <clears throat> to that, to the fact, to his reality as he sees it from this word kadesh being in the singular, that this individuality, this is part and parcel of our emancipation, of our whole freedom from the avdut b'mitzrayim, from the slavery that's in Egypt. Because a slave does not experience individuality. <clears throat> so at that point, someone asked, if we could, or if I could explain, how I understand sanctification. Just the word, kiddush, or kadesh. Sanctification, consecration, whether it be kiddush hazman, sanctification of time, which this is in particular referencing, but we also have sanctification of places in Jewish history. For example, whenever the Mishkan was erected, the portable, the tabernacle, throughout 42 encampments in the, during the 40 years, at that moment, wherever it was erected, that place became sanctified with a certain Kedushah, so the word kedusha, holiness, comes from the verb kadesh. And then we have the, but once we actually disassembled the tabernacle and moved on in our journey, that place was no longer a place of kedusha. However, the one place that retained permanent kedusha that we sanctified was Har Habayat, was the Temple Mount. So we see in our history, Kiddush HaMakom, actually one of the names for God, not one of the more popular names, but definitely one of the names that the rabbis refer to God as, is HaMakom, the place, referencing the allusion to the Harhabayat, because that's the place that God chose to reveal in the feminine herself through the divine presence, the Shekhinah. That's where she dwelt. So another name for a god is Hamakom. Whether it be sanctification of the time, Zman, Hamakom, the place, or ourselves, the individual, Hayachid, Habenadam Hayachid. What does that mean? So I gave you all a homework assignment. And I also would like to engage and share my understanding. But before that, is there anyone in the room that would like to share their understanding of Kiddush or the command, Kadesh? What is the command telling you to do? You're all going to be shy now. I could, I, could, I could describe a feeling, Yiska. That Please do. 
that makes me um, that I think is a sanctification. And it starts with uh, some planning for you know the Seder that we have every year in our house. And I'm going to jump right through the Seder and say that at the end, when I'm cleaning up the table and doing the dishes, there's this incredible feeling of something that has lingered beyond the event itself. And it's a feeling of joy, certainly, but it's a feeling of shalom, too. It's, it's, it's this amazing feeling that, in reflection about all these people coming together and connecting and inter you know, interacting with each other in a way that is, to me, incredible. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I have the right word for it. Oh, oh. You very much have the right word. You touched on something <clears throat> that's indicative of an experience of kadosh, that it lingers on. It lingers on. There are so many moments in the course of a day that we move through, we rush through, we get through, <laughs> and we don't even remember them. It's Have you ever had a moment where you wonder, how did I get here? Like, I don't even recall making the right turn, the left turn. And it's a good thing I realize that I'm driving into a parking lot and I have to focus on where I'm parking. Otherwise, I can actually, God forbid, hit a car. But I don't even recall, did I go through a red light or not? Did I stop at that stop sign? So what you're talking about is this lingering. It makes a rishima. It makes a reshem. The... Um, a lot of the Hasidic masters talk about that. There's a certain permanence when we dedicate a moment in time to whatever it is we're dedicating it to. So you're dedicating a moment in time to the, to the Seder, the Leil Seder of Pesach, with all the intention that you have mustered up from setting the table to clearing the table. And those are the bookends of that Kiddushasman. That is a consecration. That, be, that is a dedication. We have a phrase, Chanukah Tabayat, when the temple was dedicated and then rededicated. And from the name Chanukah Tabayat, we have the holiday of Chag Chanukah. So Chanukah literally means dedication. Part of what Kiddush involves is to dedicate, is to take that moment in time and declare before you go into it what you're dedicating it to. So in contemporary English, we would say it's mindful living. It's kavanah, it's intention. Is living with muda'ut, is the Hebrew word, or kavanah. That's part of what it means to consecrate. So hence, we have a phrase in Havdalah, umavdil ben kodesh lachol, referencing the Shabbat, which we call kodesh, and chol, which are the six every week, weekdays. So in the Havdalah ceremony, we're acknowledging that this whole Shabbat experience, we have made a distinction between not only Shabbat and the Sheshet Yemei of the Avodah, the six days of work, of Ma'aseh, of action, but it's also a differentiation between Hamavdil ben Kodesh v'Uchol. Now, of course, that can be in the course of any day. That's where we leave the specific, the peshat of what that means, referencing Shabbat, because we call Shabbat, Shabbat Kodesh, because that's a specific, dedicated moment in time, a 25-hour moment, but it's one moment of dedicated time. But we can take that through the week. So in the course of a day, we can have moments of Shabbat, meaning the spiritual meaning of Shabbat that it's kadosh. So we're always in this, referencing again how Rav Cook teaches, 
that we're in two worlds at the same time. We're in the Olam HaGashmi and the Olam HaRuchani, that at any given time, when we emphasize that we're in both worlds, but at a moment we're prioritizing the spiritual world, that is Kadosh. Because that can only happen through mindfulness. We don't fall into it. Like you prepare for the Seder. It's like preparing for Shabbat. We don't just happen to fall into Shabbat. Oh, it's Friday night. I think I'll go to shul. And we just go to shul. Oh, it's now we finished Kabbalah Shabbat. I think I'll come home and make Kiddush and have a nice meal. Okay, you walk in the door and you know there's no table set. There's no food. Like, where did that, where, this is not supposed to be Shabbat because we didn't prepare. So all your preparations for the Seder and for Shabbat and for whatever you're doing now in your individual journey, in your own personal intimate journey to experience a greater space, a space of abundance, that mochin de gadlut, that expanded consciousness, whatever you do to enter that, to approach that, to be in that, that is consecration. That is dedication. And, and the way Rav Cook understands this, this could only be done by an individual. Because how each one of you in this room goes through your day and consecrates it is in fact an individual endeavor. It's an individual spiritual practice. It's not the same. Hopefully it's not. You know, actually, Reb Simcha says, if we copy everything that our parents do, then we are guilty of spiritual avodah of idol worship. He, he says, you may in fact decide to live like your parents, but that must be your own claiming. You're claiming their shita, their derech, their ways, their traditions. You've gone through your own inquiry, your own search, and you're drawn to what your parents taught you as how they see their Jewish identity expressed. And then you claim it as yours. But if you just robotically duplicate somebody else's, he, he mentions your parents, it could be anyone else's behavior, well, then you're not Kadesh in the singular. Then not, uh, not only are you not sanctifying, but Reb Simchabunim is very harif, he's very, and he was not shy. He, he, was, he was not slow to use words like this. This, this is spiritual idol worship. So it does require kiddush, whatever it is, this, the, the time, the place, the individual, requires intent. Does that lend uh, more clarity? Yes, for me. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, but you, you reminded me that uh, many years ago, in preparation for, for the Seder, which is always held outside my home while my now 95-year-old mother-in-law is still alive. We come to her. But many years ago, I took different parts of the Seder and sent out readings or, or some assignment to the dozen or 15 people around the table. And I only did it once. But every Passover since, they came back to say, that Passover that you asked me to prepare was the one that I remember the most. So it's, it's reminded me that not only can we prepare, I'll, I'll do it this year with, with all the learning we have from you, <laughs> but, but we can prepare ourselves, those, those of us who are hosting that Seder, but we can help prepare the guests to be intentional in advance. Mm. Yes, I've been invited to different uh, sedarim that way. 
and the energy of everyone prepared. See, it also requires the preparation. We don't, again, we don't fall into it. That's why it lingers on. Your guests still remember that Seder. That's the lingering on. It's not just when you're washing the dishes. It's six months later. It's recalling, oh, that, that Seder was so special because not only did each individual in of themselves come prepared and enthusiastic. And, you know, it's like when you get to that part, oh, that's my part. That's my part. I'm doing this part of Magid. I'm doing this part of Maror. It's, it's that enthusiasm that we share. It's a shared reality. It's a shared reality through the individual. So each individual is maintaining integrity to his or her section, but then it's shared with other people. And right there is the answer in how to focus when we need to focus on being an individual and then being in community. Because we bring our individuality to the klal. In Hebrew, it's the prat. We bring the prat to the klal. And in the very, very first shiur that we shared together, that we were blessed to share Rav Cook's teachings, when Rav Cook described and, and how he sees each one of us, we each have a maslul miyuchad. We each have our own special journey, our own special path. Maslul is like a path. He said, to the degree that we each maintain integrity to that, the klal will benefit. The health of the nation, the health of the community in their mandate as a whole and what we've been given from God as a, as a national, as a peoplehood's mandate to be an or goyim, a light to the nations, to all the nations, is very much dependent on what each individual contributes. Mm-hmm. We just read in the last parsha contributions, the trumot, the ones that came from the generosity of the heart, hitnadvutalev. So yeah, thank you, thank you for for. Uh, that's why there's a minhag among also many people uh, on Shabbat, not not where people are asked to prepare, because on Shabbat there's a little bit more. Fluidity. One never really knows for sure exactly who will be at one's table for Shabbat, <clears throat> at least here in Nachlaot in Yerushalayim. But there is a, usually in many homes, especially when people don't know each other, a way to get to know each other is, would you share with us an insight from your week, from the parsha, from being in Israel, whatever it is. And, of course, no two people speak the same. Whatever it is there. And we remember different meals by, oh, I remember when so-and-so had that person over, what he or she said. It was fascinating. I never realized that. So again, the lingering on. When you enter that space of consecration, of dedication, of kiddush, of, and what Rav Cook is saying, kadesh, he's really emphasizing the command. He's explaining that this is a metaphor that as you individually do this and engage in this, it will build on itself. It will always linger on. Hence his reference to last week's teaching how we have to we have to be ongoingly more and more and more accentuating this freedom. Because it builds on itself. It's like, the, it's like a snowball effect in the most positive of ways we can imagine. Okay. Let's complete the section on Kadesh. And this is a teaching. <clears throat> it's from Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. <clears throat> he lived... <clears throat> excuse me. He lived a little earlier than Rav Kruk in Poland, and in one of his Sfarim, Lekutei Ma'amarim, 68d, this is what he writes. Especially the sanctity of the times that Israel sanctify. Now what he means by that is, he's referring to Kiddush Hazman for the nation. 
And there are specific times that the Israel nation, the Am Yisrael, sanctify, like Rosh Chodesh, like the like the Chagim, Shabbat. These moments, they are called Moadim. The the name Moed, Mem Vale, Mem. <laughs> Mem, Vav, Ayin, Dalid means an appointed time. So these times that Israel sanctify, this is what he's referring to, all come from Parashat HaChodesh. All come from this section that we read earlier, one verse from. That's chapter 12. We specifically read verse 1. That section is called Parashat HaChodesh, and every year it's reread in the synagogue. We take out a second Sefer Torah, and we then the Maftir, whoever would recite the Haftarah, that person is called up for the Aliyah over that portion in the second Sefer Torah of this Parsha. And it's always on the Shabbat of Rosh Chodesh Nisan, or right before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Because that's when we received, again, as a klal, the commandment. And this was given to us right before we left Mitzrayim. We left Mitzrayim on the 15th of Nisan. This command was given two days and a day earlier, uh, two weeks and a day prior, 15 days. So there's really a connection here between the very first commandment that we were given collectively and experiencing freedom. How many of us think about that really? What is the connection? What is the connection between the command, the invitation, the channel through which we can become closer to God in sanctification of time and freedom? This, this is what he teaches. The sanctity of individual times derives from the sanctity of Israel through the capacity of the individual's. What gives each one of us the capacity to, on a daily basis, dedicate moments of time as free people, because a slave cannot do this. If you're living, if someone's living in a world of I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, what if, the person no longer feels as the P.S. Etzna teaches us. They no longer have Bechirach of Shit. And he, he, he shared that beautiful teaching from Tzavaziruz, from the, in English it's translated as to heal the soul, that people bemoan, people bemoan how I no longer have free will. This was in the 20s in Poland. And his whole teaching was, but of course you have free will, but you have to declare it. You have to live a life of individuating yourself. So then you're making choices to, to Kadesh. And what Rav Tzadok HaKohen is saying, all this came, the capacity for us to do this, came from this one mitzvah. It gave a capacity to all the individuals. On the other hand, if it's approached from the point of view of collective sanctity, if we all just looked at each other and waited for the next one to collectively sanctify time, then it would be undifferentiated. Then every moment would look the same. So we have these appointed times given to us as a nation, but the way we sanctify them is individually. Hence, as many tables as there are that experience a Pesach Seder, that's how many individual experiences of freedom we have. We don't all experience it the same. So it's interesting how the command, which, a.k.a., we could also refer to it as an invitation to be close with God, was given to the collective, to the whole nation as one body. But how we receive that invitation, how we fulfill it, is individual. Individual sanctity allows one the time to be different from the other, to be unique, he says. The rabbis alluded to this interconnectedness by saying, 
And this is from Masachat um, Sanhedrin. Samach um Samach He Amud Bet in uh, sixty-five. Side uh, side two. When the rabbi said, Why is one day different from another? Why is one person different from another? Actually they're recounting an earlier discussion that one of the Roman emperors had with one of the great rabbis. I think it was Rabbi Akiva. I think it was Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarafon. I forget exactly who, but the Roman emperor was asking, I think it was Rufus, his name was Rufus, and that's what the rabbis are referring to centuries later in their discussion, when he was, when this Jewish rabbi was asked by this Roman emperor, to you people, why is one day different than another? Why is one person different than another? Because when the Roman Empire went about what they did, which was to conquer other cultures, what did they do? One of the brilliant, to, our, to many people's misfortune, one of their brilliant campaigns is they always moved populations in and out of different countries. They exiled people from their homelands. We were not the only ones. This was was a practice of theirs. That they would take a population and forcibly transfer them to another part of the world. Because they did not want people to experience one day as being different from another. They did not want an individual to feel different from another. Because they were slaves. So hence this dialogue ensued between this Roman leader and one of the great rabbis. And that's where, that's actually one of our sources. For in fact, it's a, it's a mandate. It's actually a private commandment to go out and carve your own niche in time. Kadesh. So, Rav Cook is inviting us all. Hevra, each one of you, it's like he's speaking, he could be speaking before a thousand people, but he's speaking to me, or he's speaking to each one of you as an individual. Kadesh. Take your life, and as an individual, sanctify it. Okay. So, that's the first step, Kadesh. Are there any other insights or questions Reflections that any of you would like to share with us. I'll share uh, what I was thinking about for Kadesh, um, which is from a uh, uh, somewhat recent parsha where uh, Yaakov um, sends his family across a river and then he's left on the one side of the river and he wrestles with this. We don't know what it is. It's an angel. He thinks it's Hashem uh, himself, but uh, we don't know. But it's this sort of face to face interaction that he names the place in the morning, Daniel, which has to do with, you know, meeting God face-to-face. And so I think that's, that's an example of a sanctification where you have an experience in a place that also can occur over time, and you name it. You do something to mark it, to remember it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, he called that place Peniel because that's where he experienced a dedicated moment in time. It's beautiful. Yes. And we can extrapolate from that. We could really go someplace with that. We can take that as, just like it's Siyat Mitzrayim, historically, is what gives us the whole capacity to become free, that historically we can take that, and at any given moment in the course of a day, we can declare, we can dedicate, we can name that place Peneel because of what we experienced through Kiddush Hazman, we experienced a dedicated place in the course of our day. It could be a part of our house, it could be a part of a beach, going for a walk on a beach or on a mountaintop, it could be in the middle of a shuk, and of a market, of a store. But depending what is happening there, what you're encountering, if, it, if, in fact, what you're encountering is the very face of God, that place becomes special. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. With that, we move to the next step. 
It's really two steps, or well, orchatz karpas. We say it together. Orchatz means and wash, and then karpas literally means and then the greens. I'm not going to share any teachings now on washing. I'm going to save that for when we wash again, before we eat the matzah. So we'll 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 table that temporarily. We'll get to it later. Well, let's go right into the karpas, which most people translate as greens, although the tradition is to have not only parsley or another kind of green. Many people have a piece of potato, which obviously is not a green, but it is part of the family of vegetables, yurakot. And in Hebrew, yurakot, vegetables, comes from the Hebrew word yarek. Yarok is the color green. So yarek is a vegetable, yarok is green. So we could extend greens to anything that we would say, bereperi ha'adama. It's the blessing over that which grows from the ground, as contrasted with anything that grows as from a fruit of the tree, like bereperi ha'etz. So it would have to be a, what we would call in English a vegetable. Now, this is very interesting, because Rav Cook shares an insight that to many of us is very different than how we've come to understand eating karpas. Many of us go into eating karpas. There's a teaching from Rabbi Nachman, for example, that speaks about karpas as being a very simple anything that grows from the ground, a piece of celery, a piece of parsley, a piece of boiled potato, this is not what we would call gourmet cooking by any means. And now this is how we begin our journey in experience freedom in experiencing freedom. So it emphasizes it emphasizes how big something can be when it appears so small. That's something that that's how Rabbi Nachman approaches it. Rav Cook approaches it very differently based on a discussion in Mesechet Shabbat, in, in the Gemara. And this may explain why we have salad before we eat, which is, in the American diet, many people serve one salad. In the Shabbat diet, we have many little salatim before the main course. And for some people... That could be, the, depending how many salatim we serve, with the challah and a glass of wine, that could be a whole meal. But the introduction or the beginning of a meal with some vegetables has a different purpose, according to how Rav Cook understands it. And it's dafka because of this understanding, because of this reason, we in fact ingest this as the very first food item. So here's what he discusses. According to the Talmud, vegetables before the meal were a course reserved only for the wealthy. Only for the wealthy. And it's based on a discussion in Masechet Shabbat, Daf Kuf Mem, page 140, Amud Bet, side B. Listen to this, Chevra. So Rav Chista said, Rav Chista was one of the rabbis in this discussion, a student who does not have much bread should not eat vegetables. Why? Because they wet the appetite. They're an appetizer. They're, they're literally, the, in English, when we say appetizer, it's to wet the appetite. And he said, Rav Chista said, when I was poor, I did not eat vegetables because they wet the appetite. So it's almost unfair to have a vegetable if one does not have a big meal to follow because then one, the purpose of the vegetable is to make you more hungry, is to wet the appetite. So this is the piece of Talmud that Rav Cook brings to his spiritual understanding. <clears throat> So now he jumps right into the pool of spirituality. A spiritual novice, not very far along along the way, will restrict his or her diet 
in an attempt to live a life of asceticism and purity. Many people, and he taught all different kinds of people, many people tend, it's a tendency, that when one begins their Jewish journey, or their journey in more traditional Judaism, they'll take on a lot of extra strict measures. It's almost like a counterbalance. It's like a yin-yang to counterbalance all those years of indulgence without any sense of self-discipline. So they take on an extra strict measure. And we hope for all of us, I'm using the all of us in the most collective way possible, that this is part of a journey and not the end of a journey. Therefore, eating karpas spiritually would not be part of that person's diet. The person wants to eat very little and really be very detailed with it, very careful with it. But Rav Cook explains, however, that may be good and that may be valid, and there's a reason for that, for the person who's beginning the journey. However, our aspiration is to reach a state in which positive values do not impede one another, but rather enhance one another. A state of divine harmony, whereby in emulation of the Creator, because we're given a commandment to be godly. So we want to emulate the Creator. So therefore, how does he understand that? Through a pasuk in Tehillim, it says in Kuf Yud Gimel, chapter 113, pasukim Hey and Vav, verses 5 and 6. Mika Hashem Elokeinu, who is like the Lord our God? Hamagbi Lashavit, who sits high above. The word misgav is to be high up. Who sits high up. Umashpili le'ot b'shamayim uva'aretz. And who sees the lowly upon the heaven and the earth. In other words, regardless of how high one is, if one really wants to be godly, one needs to see everybody. This is what we strive for, not to be, how I understand this, to be in this insular, very protected little place where I'm afraid to whet my appetite to experience more because I'm afraid. I don't know how to do it. I'm I'm insecure and I need to counterbalance whatever it is I'm beginning my journey with. He's saying the ideal is Going back to his expressions, Olam HaGashmi and the Olam HaRuchani is a harmony of all these worlds. In other words, a big buffet of life, a sumptuous feast. The person who is free is not afraid of that. That person is not afraid to overeat because the person has applied self-discipline in moving more and more into that harmony of the two worlds, which is the full meal. This is, Rav Cook explains, this is an expansive state of consciousness. This is what it means to be b'mochin d'gadlut. Alluded to by verses, there's a beautiful verse by Zechariah. You know Zechariah, who we quoted last week, he was the prophet who quoted a lot about the ideal Yerushalayim. You know, he also talked about the problems that Yerushalayim was enduring. But the ideal Yerushalayim, when we think of Yerushalayim in the old days, during his time, we think of what we call today the old city. And when we think of the old city, what's the first image that pops up? Walls, exactly, walls, thank you, exactly. It's a walled-in city. Why did we have to have a walled-in city? To protect ourselves from any foreign peoples that would want to attack us. That's why communities and cities years ago would build walls. Zechariah, though, this is how he pictures Yerushalayim. 
when we experience the final and the complete redemption for all of humanity, it's a pasuk in uh, Zechariah Bet, chapter 2, verse, um, pasuk Chet, verse 8, Perazut Teshev Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim shall dwell open. Perazut means open without walls. Why? Merov Adam Ubehemabatocha. For there'll be a multitude of so many people and animals that it will be impossible to wall them in. I mean, th- there's, there's always this expression that Yerushalayim will become Eretz Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael will become the world. And that is the fulfillment of a light into the nations. Not that there'll be, God forbid, forcibly conversions, but the world will be so inspired to believe in God that Yerushalayim will not be able to contain within its own, within her walls, a limited population. And not only people, but also, what's the, what is Behemah reference when it says also the multitude of cattle? What, what's that a metaphor for? Plentitude, abundance. You could have huge populations. We see those huge populations throughout India, throughout China, throughout Africa, and they're starving to death. So it's not just that there'll be so many people at this time of redemption that the walls cannot contain all of the people, but the walls can't also contain the cattle because it'll be that abundant. This is a big feast. Again, going back to wetting the appetite. This is what we want to whet the appetite, the spiritual appetite for, where we can engage with this type of sumptuous feast without fear of overindulging, without fear of overeating, because it's in harmony. And then he quotes another pasuk from Yeshayahu, this is in Yeshayahu Nun Chet. It's in chapter 58, Pasuk Yudalid, the 14th verse. Az titanag al Hashem. Then Yeshayahu says, meaning referencing the future redemption, you shall enjoy, like Oneg Shabbat, you shall enjoy God. al And he will cause you to ride high upon the land. And he will give you to eat the portion of Yaakov. And this was the word of, of, of God. And the, the Nachalat Yaakov, this is in, Nachala means inheritance. Now, why didn't he say the inheritance of Avraham or the inheritance of Yitzchak? Why, Dafka, is he referencing the Nachalat? of Yaakov, because that's the Nachala Bli Mitzarim. That's the inheritance without boundaries, without limitations, which was given to ya- Yaakov in the Bracha in Bereshit 28.14, Kafchet Yudalad, where we have the famous verse, Ufaratsta, you shall spread out, Yama Vekedma Tzfona Negba. You know, we have the song, Uferatsta, Uferatsta. And this was only said to Yaakov. This is his portion. This, is, this will be what he bequeaths to his, to his descendants. The spreading out, that feeling of, oh, I can fly out of this birdcage that I've kept, been kept in, in that place of narrowness. So all of these verses all allude to, you don't have to be afraid to whet the appetite. Because in fact, your very future, the future of your own freedom is a freedom of expansiveness. So on this night, on this night, which is called in Shemot, again, Yud Bet, I, I suggest you really review chapter 12. There are so many Pesukim that Rav Cook quotes from Yud Bet. This is uh, Mem Bet. This is 42. It's called the night of Pesach is Leil Shimurim. It's the night of guarding. What is being guarded? What is being watched? We are protected. You know, this is a big radical move from being slaves to now being free people. It could really cause a lot of, it's traumatic. 
psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. However, we don't have to worry about that because we're being protected. God is in essence holding holding us. We are protected from an imbalance, from overeating in our moment of freedom, from experiencing freedom, from an overabundance, from a disproportion of people's values. Wow, there are so many people who are afraid to move ahead because of this tendency to overindulge. Hence, we are ready to note our freedom by looking for a food that actually, quote, whets the appetite. Dafka, we begin the Seder with something that makes us hungry, spiritually hungry, also physically hungry, because many of us have not eaten for hours and hours and hours. And I dare say that piece of parsley or potato never tasted so good. (laughs) Right? In our newfound state of spiritual maturity, we will be able to live in abundance rather than in the previous state of scarcity. Chevra, never, never, Rav Cook is saying, never worry about not venturing forth because you're afraid of becoming wealthy. There are people, there are people that suffer from this fear of becoming wealthy. He's, of course, referencing spiritual wealth here. Live. Live with the I cans, I will, I must. Of course, God is there to guide me. God is there to protect me. The whole night that declares our freedom is called Lel Shimurim. It is the night of protection. So when you declare your own independence and you move ahead into your own journey into that expansive state, know that God is protecting you. Feel the Shekhinah. Dafka, the Gilui HaShekhinah, the revelation of, the, of God's presence. And then he concludes by saying, well, this is where we shall conclude. However, this spiritual maturation would never have come about were it not for the previous refinement in the smeltery of Egypt. Just like he referenced in the previous teaching that to protect the twofold dynamic of this holiday is not only your cheruth, but also your bi'or chemetz. He looks back in his past and honors it. He honors it. From the deprivation and depravity of Egypt, from that space, that's when we ascended to Eretz Chemda, Tova, Uvracha. We say it in the Berkat Mazon, that phrase, Eretz Chemda, Eretz Chemda. It's a song, the land of delight. The land of delight. And in this expansive state, and we'll conclude on this note, beautiful, beautiful, exquisite pasuk in Devarim, in Perek Chet, pasuk Tet, 8-9. What is Eretz Yisrael? Eretz asher lo b'miskenut tochal balachem. It's a land that you will never eat bread in poverty. Lo techsa kolba. It lacks nothing in it. So I bless you, I bless all of us that we can sense the presence of the Shekhinah to hold on to that presence, that protectiveness as we venture into the unknown future, as we declare our own spiritual independence, our own uniqueness, and never fear, God forbid, never fear that space of abundance of moving from Mitzrayim to Eretz Yisrael, Mitzrayim being the land of narrowness, of poverty, of limitedness, to a space that the Pasuk says lacks nothing, where you will never eat bread in poverty ever again. 
may it come to be true. Can you hear that song? And we will move ahead next week with the further teaching. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, do we have any any questions at this point? Any insights that you would like to leave with that we can pick up with next week? Perhaps jot something down later if something occurs. We'll begin next week with insights and questions on this. All right. Call to all of you. Be well. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.